It's a particular joy to be with you today. Uh, I have long benefited from and admired your former rector, John Yates. He was actually ministering when my wife was in Columbia, South Carolina at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. Uh, she was serving on staff in that congregation, and uh, that's when I first got to hear about him. And uh, then I've been able to serve with him in the Gospel Coalition and uh, have greatly benefited from his encouragement. And he has been bragging about Sam Ferguson for I don't know how long. And so I've wanted to meet Sam. And then uh, our mutual friend, Mark Dever, we were at a conference, and uh, our mutual friend, Mark Dever, said, okay, the two of you are going to skip tonight's session, and you are going to go out to supper together. And we spent three delightful hours talking about anything and everything. And uh, so to be able to be with you, Sam, in this congregation means so much. I've been praying for this congregation for years. I was at the high school the day that you announced that you were going to build this. I, I saw the pictures and uh, couldn't believe the undertaking. And now to get to stand here in this beautiful space, but to be present with a congregation that is known for loving the gospel, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, sharing it promiscuously. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness in that regard. And I hope to encourage you today from God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to open them and look right back at that passage that we just heard from. I want to outline it for you so you have some idea of where we're going. It really falls into three parts. From chapter 11, verse 27 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, that's really the prologue. You know, if you, if you have a, an edition of Shakespeare's plays, maybe the Riverside Shakespeare or an Oxford edition of Shakespeare, the, 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 there will always at the top of that play be a list of the characters. So that when you start reading through the play, you know who people are. Well, that's really how verses 27 to 32 function. They're telling you who these characters are going to be that you're going to see beginning in chapter 12. And it tells you important things that you need to know about the family that Abraham comes from and the place and the culture and the religion that Abraham comes from. Then in chapter 12, verse 1, you get this powerful command of God to Abram to leave his country and to go seek the promised land, and that's repeated again in verse 7. And then in verses 2 and 3, you get this sevenfold promise from God. So you get, you get a prologue, a command, and a promise. The prologue from verse 27 to 32, the command in verse 1, and then it's repeated in the form of a promise in verse 7, and then the promises of verses 2 and 3. Or we could think of it this way. 27 to 32 tells you about Abram's origins, where he comes from. Verse 1 tells you about his destination, where he's going. Verses 2 and 3 tell you how he's going to get there by the promise and blessing of God. His origin, his, des his, uh, his destination, and then how he's going to get there, the means by which he is going to get to the promised 
land and to all the blessings that God has for him. This is an incredibly important passage. One of my professors called these three verses in Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3, the most important verses in the Bible. Now, don't you love it when people say things like that? Uh, you know, we could argue until the cows come home over what the most important verses are in the Bible, but this is a pretty good candidate. Why? He went on to explain it this way. Everything before Genesis 12:1 in the Bible leads up to it. Everything after Genesis 12:1 to 3 in the Bible fulfills it. That's actually true. Everything that's in, in even the sermon series that you've just listened to, Genesis 1 to 11. And by the way, I was thinking, Glenn Connect at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, the very first sermon series he preached, John, uh, Sam, was on uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And one of his elders was saved as he read Genesis 1-1 in that series. Isn't that, isn't that, an elder gets saved in church. Isn't that amazing? Okay. Um, so you've, you've just heard Genesis 1 through 11. It's leading up to these verses especially, 12, 1 to 3, because this is going to set the stage for something grand in God's purposes of redemption. And then everything else that follows it in the Bible fulfills it. So these, this is a powerful passage. Let me say one more thing about it. This passage gives us the first articulation of what we call the covenant of grace. Now, now, Christian theologians have for hundreds and hundreds of years said the first giving of the gospel in the Bible actually is found in Genesis 3.15. And that's, that's right. When God says to the serpent that he is going to preserve the woman from the serpent's design and that he is going to crush his head, and, uh, and uh, that, that he is going to protect her from the serpent. That, that Genesis 3 uh, passage uh, where God says that is often called the first giving of the gospel. But this is the first full articulation of the covenant of grace. And what is a covenant? It's a binding commitment with blessings and obligations. And that's laid out for you in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You see the obligations in verse 1, and you see the promises or the blessings in verses 2 and 3. But you're also going to see that the obligations and the blessings get all tangled up with one another. They're, they're inextricably connected to one another, and that's very important. This this passage and the story of Abram in general is important for the Apostle Paul in articulating the gospel. Do you remember what was read to us this morning from Romans 4? When, when Paul wants to explain salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do you know where he goes to do that? Genesis! That's where Paul goes to do that. In Romans 4, Paul is basically saying to both the Jews and the Gentiles that are listening to him, I did not invent the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Moses did. And he goes to Genesis 15, and he goes to the story of Abram to show that Abram was justified by faith. Well, these are the promises in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that Abram had to believe. So this is an incredibly important passage. It's also important for us as believers trying to figure out how are we supposed to relate to the world? 
How are we supposed to relate in the world? We live in a time, in a country, and in a culture that has become much more antagonistic to Bible-believing Christianity. So how do you operate in a country and a culture like that? Frankly, many of our neighbors think that because we are traditional Bible-believing Christians that we hate them and we want their harm. Now, we do not. We, we, uh, we, our, our, our God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so our posture towards the world is dictated by the God that we love and serve. But in this passage, you actually get your marching orders for how you're supposed to relate to the world. So this is an enormously important passage. And when your pastor asked me, hey, would you like to preach on Genesis 12, 1 to 3? I said, are you kidding me? Throw me in that briar patch. I I would love to preach on Genesis 12, 1 to 3 to your congregation. So let's dive into this passage and we'll begin first looking at verses 27 to 32. What, What do we learn in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32? We learn who Abram was, where he came from, what he believed, what his family was like. Even when you look, take take a look specifically at verse 29. You're told the name of Nahor's wife there, Milcah. And you're also told the name of Abram's wife, Sarai. Anybody in Mesopotamia who heard those women's names would have immediately known, aha, their family worships the moon. And in fact, you go on down, look at verse 31, that whole family came out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, Ur was a very important center of moon worship in that part of the world. And Joshua did not forget this hundreds of years later after this. If you look at Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, he calls the people of God together and he says, the Lord God of Israel says this, From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Did you know that? Abram came from a family of moon-worshiping idolaters in Babylon. By the way, think how incredibly mind-blowing and encouraging that would have been for the children of Israel when hundreds and hundreds of years later they would have been captive in Babylon. You know, the, 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 Lord, brought, the, the Lord brought faith out of Babylon once. He can do it again. But that should be incredibly encouraging to you. By the way, do you know where Ur the Chaldeans is? If we went to a map today, do you know where Ur the Chaldeans is? It's in Iraq. Now, Iraq was invented by the British about a hundred and something years ago, right? But, but modern-day Iraq, that's where Ur the Chaldeans is. So the father, the first Hebrew, was a moon-worshipping Iraqi. Now, that, that should be encouraging to you. If God can make the father of faith out of a moon-worshipping pagan idolater, he can do anything. If, if God can take a Christian persecuting Pharisee like Paul 
and make him into the greatest Christian missionary that the world has ever known, he can do anything. You know, I, I'm greatly indebted to Anglicans. Uh, Cranmer and Newton and Simeon and Ryle and Packer and a hundred others that I could name right now. One of my favorites, of course, is John Newton. On his plaque at St. Mary Woolnoth in London are these words. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. He was a slave ship captain, and by the way, became an inspiration to William Wilberforce for the abolition not only of the slave trade, but of slavery in the British Empire. How, that's the last person in the world that you think that God is going to do that through. God does things like that. Our God does the impossible. My friends, that is so important for us. It does not matter how much this culture turns against Christ in the gospel. The Holy Spirit's more powerful than this culture. And the Holy Spirit can convert anyone. And God, in His grace, made promises to this idolater from Mesopotamia and made him the father of all those who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Is that not glorious? That's the kind of God we love and serve. Now, the very first thing he says to him, take a look at chapter 12, verse 1. The very first thing that this God says, uh, that God says to this man is, go. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So the first word that God speaks to Abram is a command. Okay, now notice there's blessing wrapped up in this command because though he is to leave his country and his family and his father's house, he's to do so in order to receive what God is going to give to him. So God will never ask you to give up what he is not prepared to outbless you with, with something else. God's blessings far outweigh our sacrifices. That's why Jim Elliott, sort of riffing on Matthew Henry's father, Philip Henry, said the famous words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God, God's never going to ask you to give up something that he's not going to outbless you with in what he offers to you, even in the midst of your sacrifice. And so he's asking Abram to do a lot, but he's going to bless him with a land of promise. So the first words he speaks to him are a command. And by the way, that's not unlike what he does in Genesis chapter 1. You know, we're, we're told by Moses in Genesis 1:28, that the first words that human beings ever heard God say were words of blessing. Listen to Genesis 1:28, And God said, and God blessed them, and God said. That's Genesis 1:28. And then what comes after those words? And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now listen to that. That's a command, but it's called a blessing. 
Why? Because it is. God's saying, you're like me. You're created in my image. I filled up the world. When, when You remember how Genesis 1 describes the world before God's created work was done? It was formless, void, and dark. And what happens over the six days of creation? God orders that which was formless. He fills up that which was empty, and he brings light where there was darkness. And then he turns around to Adam and Eve, and he says, you do so too. You go out there and fill up this world. Fill up this world with more image bearers. I made you in my image. You fill up this world with image bearers. So they're going to get to be like God. So the command is a blessing. And the blessing is stated in the form of a command. And that's important for us to understand because, yes, all of God's commands are for His glory, and we're to obey them just because He said so. You know, that's the, that, that's the, that's the lesson that daddies have to teach their children. Daddy, why do I have to do what mama said? Because she said so. Right? So we do what God says just because He said so. But God's commands are meant to bless us. They're not meant to ruin our lives. God's, God's intention in His commands is to bless us. That's very important because there's so many, think, so many people that think that God is sitting up in heaven thinking, let's see, what can I command that will ruin their lives? When in fact, all of His commands are meant for our blessings. Now, this command comes with sacrifice. Abram is told to leave his country, his relatives, and his immediate family under his father's rule. That's a big deal. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a South Carolinian, and we are all about people and place. I, there's a very famous book by Ben Robertson, who was a World War II correspondent, and it's a memoir of his upcountry childhood, and it's called Red Hills and Cotton, and it opens with the words of his grandmother Bowen, heaven is like Carolina on a May morning. I mean, South Carolinians <laughs> love South Carolina, and we love our people. I grew up with my father taking me to graveyards in the countryside and saying, now, son, these are your people. Uh, we're very rooted with people and places. And by the way, Virginians are a little bit like that, you know. Some of y'all may be Virginians. Um, you know, there's, there's an old saying that goes that North Carolina is a valley of humility between two mountains of conceit. Now, I'll just, I'll just, I'll leave that there, okay? I'll just leave that there. But South Carolinians, and maybe some Virginians here, we are all about our people and our place. And if God said leave your country and your people and your family and go, that comes with sacrifice. And let me say, in Abram's time, doubly so than ours, because your country, your people, and your family, that was where you got your security, your livelihood, and your identity. And God is saying, leave all that and trust me to give you something better. Leave all that and trust me to give you something better. So this, this command has some teeth in it. The, 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 there's some hurt in this command. It's got blessing on the other side, but there's some hurt 
in this command. And that's very important for us to remember because there are things that God asks us to do that are hard. He understands that. He understands that. And this is hard for Abram to do. And let me just pause and and say a word of encouragement. How does Abram do with this command? Well, let's see. He's in Haran in verses 27 to 32, so he's halfway to the promised land. So we can either give him one point or a half point for that. Uh, How does he do with leaving his relatives? Um, He brought them with him. How do you do with leaving his father's house? Um, He brought him with him. So Abram is either generously one out of three or more strictly a half out of three on these commands. Let that encourage you, brothers and sisters. Sanctification does not happen in a day in the Christian life. You know, a lot of us pastors, we would love to have Abram in our congregation. You know, if God came, would you like to have the father of faith in your congregation? Yes, Lord, give him to me. And then you find out he's one out of three on obeying the commands of God. Be patient, friends. Sanctification doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month or a year. How, how many years does it take Abram to obey those three commands? A, a whole lot of years. You're still dealing with these commands when the story of Sodom and Gomorrah comes. Because that's, that's when he's finally going to complete you know, the, all the stuff with Lot. You know, his nephew. You know, so the, ex, ex, extracting ourselves from the entanglements of the world is a hard, slow, one step forward, two steps back sort of process sometimes. Don't think that God will be done in a day. He will bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you, but it won't take a day. You'll be learning things when you're old like I am. You'll be learning things in your old age, you'll be learning how to trust God, how to obey God, how to follow God, how to walk with God. Don't be surprised by that. Abram, Abram himself, the father of faith, had those lessons to learn. So here's, we have the, the prologue, and he's called out of idolatry into the worship and service of the one living God in verses 27 to 32. You have the command that's given in verse 1, and now look at the promises that are given in verses 2 and 3. Here, we see seven promises poured out on Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And, and you know, in, in, I don't know how it is with you, but a lot of times bless is an empty word for us. You know, you'll hear some of the Lord bless you real good. And you have no idea what that means. Okay? But blessing is a big deal. At the end of this service, you're going to have a blessing pronounced on you. And that is a big, big deal. In, uh, in fact, when Israel gathered, they gathered to do what? To bless God. And God, in number six, told Moses to tell Aaron, to tell the priests, when the people come to bless me, do not let them go until you bless them. In other words, you can't out-bless God. 
He's going to bless you more than you bless him. And so you remember that's when he said, you tell Moses, he tells Moses to tell Aaron to tell the priest, when the people are getting ready to leave, before they leave, you say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessing is a big deal to the Lord. And here it's being pronounced on Abram. You're not only going to be a great nation, you are going to be a recipient of the favor of God. He goes on to say, I will make your name great. That is so, you, you will, if you remember back to your pastor's message on Genesis 11 and the, and the people of the plains of Shinar, what was their purpose in building the tower? To make a name for themselves. And what does God say? <clears throat> Mm-mm. Not going to happen. But to Abram, he says, I'm going to give you a great name. And we're still talking about Abram today, and we don't know anybody's name from Shinar. They were going to make a great name. We don't know their names. Abram is a nomad from Mesopotamia, and people, billions of people around the world know his name. God fulfilled his promise to Abram. You shall be a blessing. Now, interestingly, that's stated almost in a command form. So this is important. Abram is being blessed in order that he will be a blessing. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. Then the fourth uh, the, the fifth promise, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, seventh promise, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A sevenfold benediction, a sevenfold promise of God on Abraham saying very clearly, Abram, the way that you're going to get what I promised you is through my blessing. It's going to be by my grace that you come to receive all the things that I have held out for you in this covenant. Our purpose in life is based upon the gracious promise of God. This is so important. What we do in the Christian life is not to get God to love us. It is because God loves us. And that difference makes all the difference in life. Have you ever tried to serve someone in order to get them to love you? Have you ever been in a relationship like that? I, I, I've seen incredibly godly people crumple under that kind of relationship. One of the godliest women that I've ever known was the daughter of a single mother who's Father left the family when she was in high school, and her mother was very bitter and not a Christian. And this young woman came to faith in Christ as a teenager. She, she's intelligent. She's godly. She's respected as a leader in our community. And all her life, she has tried to serve her mother. And her mother is unpleasable. Absolutely unpleasable. In fact, one day after church, I, I, I was talking with her, and she just broke down in tears. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, my mother said something to me today that she has never, ever said before. And I said, what? And she said, thank you. 
This, she, was, she was in her 50s. My mother has never said thank you. And she served her mother until her mother died. And, and never was able to get the kind of response that she wanted from her mother. Serving someone like that will kill you. Now, flip, flip the story. Do you have a relationship in life with someone who you know loves you who treasures you, and serving them is one of the great delights of your life. It may be a friend. You may have a friend like that. Mark Dever has been a friend like that to me. It may, it may be, I hope it's your spouse. I hope, I hope so. That you, you, you can't wait to serve them because you know that they love you. You know, you, you know the mom who's in the kitchen and the, and, the, and the two and a half year old comes tottering into the kitchen, in the kitchen with, the, with a crayon drawing that she's done. Mommy, 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 I made a picture of you. And you look at it and it looks like Sasquatch. <laughs> and and what, is, what does mom say? What does mom say? Oh, that's the worst picture I've ever seen. No. Oh, that's so wonderful. We're going to put that up on the refrigerator. It was not earned by the quality of the artistry. It was because mother loves that child that the picture goes up on the refrigerator. It's life-giving to get to serve somebody like that. It's life-giving. You'd walk over shards of glass to serve somebody who loves you like that. And that's, that's what's happening here. God's saying, Abram, what I'm calling you to do is based on the fact that I've chosen you, I've set my love on you, I've made promises to you, go be what I've made you to be. And even the hard thing, to think of it, friends, think of how you're going to have to leave your country, you're going to have to leave your family, you're going to have to leave your father's house. What does that remind you of? Remember Jesus in the Gospels? Leave your nets and come follow me. But Lord, I've got to bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead and come follow me. You see, you see what Jesus is saying in the Gospels? He's saying, I'm the God who called Abraham to come and follow me, to give up everything and come follow me. None of, nobody can say that to you but Jesus. I can't say that. Even Sam can't say that to you. Sam would love to be able to tell you you had to come follow, but he can't. Only Jesus can say that. And Jesus says, leave everything and come follow me. And that's just like God with Abram. And notice especially the last sentence. Notice the, the last sentence of verse 3. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the foundation of Christian world missions. And this is the foundation of Christian love and concern and care for the well-being of all peoples of the world. We aspire to their inclusion in the Abrahamic blessing through Christ. All of these promises, Paul tells us, are fulfilled in Christ because the great seed of promise for Abram's blessing was not Isaac, it was Jesus. Remember, Paul says in Genesis 3, Abraham's seed was Christ. 
So these promises are made to and fulfilled to us and for us in Christ. And so when Jesus says, go into all nations and make disciples, he's basing that on Genesis 12, 3. This is the foundation for the Christian global mission, the promise of God to Abram over 4,000 years ago, a promise at the heart of the covenant of grace. And that promise also determines our fundamental attitude and posture towards the world. The world is afraid that we've got a conspiracy against them. Well, I've got some bad news. We do have a conspiracy, but I've got some good news. It's not against them. It's for them. We are part of a grand conspiracy to bless the world. We, we, we want the well-being of the world here and hereafter. We want their eternal well-being. And that's why we go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And that's why we go across the street with the gospel. And that's why we care about the well-being of our neighbors. And that's why we seek the general welfare and the common good. Because God made us and gave us blessing in order that we would be a blessing. And that all goes back to Genesis 12, 3 and Abraham. The refugees from England and Scotland who were in Geneva in the 1550s escaping the reign of Mary Tudor and the Catholic persecution of the New Protestants, the persecution that took the life of Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The refugees that were in Geneva did an English translation of the Bible. And they affixed to it notes. And so they wrote the first study Bible in the history of the world. And it was called the Geneva Study Bible. And you, by the way, you can still buy a copy today. I'd encourage you to do that. And in the Geneva Study Bible, the note for Genesis 12, 2 says, The world shall recover by thy seed, which is Christ, the blessing which they lost in Adam. Is that not glorious? The world shall recover by thy seed. Abraham, your seed, by your seed, the world is going to recover. And of course, your seed is who? Christ, the blessing which they lost in Adam. That promise is for you. That promise is for the world. And we have the privilege of bearing that good news to the world because we have been recipients undeserving recipients of that same good news and the person and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that we might be forgiven sins and brought into the enjoyment of God's promises and inheritance, and we want the world to enjoy it with us. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and by your Holy Spirit, help us to believe them in Jesus' name. Amen.